So do you remember anything from algebra class? Anything from algebra? Now that question for some of us just took us back two decades or more. You know? For some of us, that took us back two days or more, right? right? Anybody in algebra right now? Come on, let me show your hand. Anybody taking algebra right now? The Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you. Hang in there, Michael. It'll be all right. You're good. You may not know this, but you actually are using a lot of algebra every day in ways that you might not even make a connection with. Megan Jones of Reader's Digest helps us see one of these ways. Imagine that you have $40 to spend at the grocery store. You know you need to buy three boxes of cereal, four loaves of bread, and three jars of tomato sauce. Also, you really want to buy some candy. Then she goes on. If cereal boxes are each $4, loaves of bread are $2, and jars of tomato sauce are $5, how many candy bars can you buy with your $40? Hey, that's algebra, right? I mean, right there, that's just algebra. Now, I'm feeling really good about remembering my algebra skills because I totally know the answer to this. I mean, just like immediately, I've, I figured this one out because I know that, that I can buy $40 worth of candy bars, right? I don't need tomato sauce, you know? I need whatchamacallits, and I'm good, and, and that's fine. Now, you may not be able to do that kind of lightning fast algebra, but, but the reality is all day, every day, you are doing calculations. You are doing calculations. All day, every day, you are taking things into account. You're weighing options. You're deciding, you're determining, you're reckoning, you're meditating. In other words, what you're doing is you're thinking. All day, every day, we are thinking. It's been said that we have about 10,000 thoughts a day. So, what are, you, what are you thinking about? What's on your mind during all those times? And maybe, what about this? What about the thoughts we have at night? I mean, are those 10,000 thoughts just when we're awake? I mean, don't we have some thoughts at night? And aren't some of those thoughts, thoughts that turn into bad dreams and nightmares? And if we do have bad dreams and nightmares, is, is there any help for those bad dreams and nightmares? Any help for those thoughts? Is there any help if we wake up in the middle of the night in a panic? Is there any help if, if we're wide awake in the middle of the day in a panic? Is there any help? Well, there is. There's a lot of help and there's a lot of hope, but what kind? Well, let's find out. Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. The Apostle Paul writes, Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Apostle Paul is finishing up a letter to his friends at a place called Philippi. Philippi was an ancient trade city about 10 miles off the coast of Greece. Now, these are some pretty catchy words he's got here, right? I mean, these are, these are some big-time words, so let's just kind of unpack them for just a minute. The first one he says here is whatever's true. If we're honest with our hearts, when it comes to those 10,000 thoughts a day that we have, we are more inclined to not think about things that are true. As a culture, we're, we're more inclined to reality TV than we are to real life. And by the way, reality TV is not reality, all right? It is not real life. 
We immerse ourselves in the constant streams of of fiction and fantasy and virtual reality, whether we're reading books or watching TV or or on the internet. And those things aren't all evil, but, but sometimes we can't pull ourselves away from them. You know, we might sit down and and binge watch a a TV season of shows on zombies walking dead. But we get bored five minutes into a movie about Christians standing firm. We might digitally record that documentary on the, the bad boy athlete and his fall from grace. But we won't even watch the documentary about the Christian athlete who's living his life by grace. We will post and and repost angry political ideas, but we won't post or repost challenging biblical ideas. Or or worse, we post both of them, you know, like back back together. Listen, when it it comes to our social media life, just, just remember we've been called to be lights in a crooked and perverse world. Let us be lights, not angry Christians in the middle of a crooked and perverse world. We do need to understand this, though. We're all sinners. And if we're honest with our hearts, we don't always gravitate toward those things that are true. It's not always our first gut reaction. It's estimated using today's numbers that Henry Ford was worth about $200 billion dollars. That'll buy some serious candy bars, right? And of course, Henry Ford would buy O. Henry candy bars. Come on, every now and then. This is what Henry Ford said. Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is probably the reason so few engage in it. Thinking's hard work. It's hard work, but if we don't do the hard work, we will casually and consistently drift toward things that are not true. Our minds will be full of things that are actually not true. So what is true? Well, Paul's not writing about scientific facts. He's not writing about algebraic equations. Paul's writing about spiritual realities. And so when it comes to your heart, when it comes to your mind, when it comes to your soul, What is true? This is how Jesus prayed for his friends. John 17, verse 17. Sanctify them, Lord. Purify, consecrate, separate them for yourself. Make them holy by the truth. And then he prayed this. Your word is truth. Jesus says the the word of God is truth. So what's the word of God? Well, the Word of God cannot be contained with just words. It's, it's beyond words. In a sense, the, the Word of God is, is so magnificent that it can't be contained really anywhere. It's just that great, that fantastic. The Word of God spoke the world into existence. So that's kind of a big deal. But by His design, for His glory, for your good, God did not just want his truth floating through the universe in magnificent ways. In his extreme kindness to me and to you, God made sure that his truth was written down. 
so that we would know of his character, so that we would know of his work and his ways, so that we would know of his son, Jesus. And where is all that truth found? Well, all of that truth that God had written down is found in the Bible. So please, for the good of your life, for the good of your marriage, for the good of your kids, for the good of your grandkids, for the good of our church, for the good of your church if you're visiting with us somewhere else, for the good of of people who are not Christians who are just around your life, please spend some time reading the Bible. Just, Just read the Bible. It doesn't have to be an hour Bible study, just Just spend some time reading the Bible. Read a a verse. Read a a chapter. Read a page. Just just read. Use an actual Bible or or get a Bible app, but but just read. And when you read, think about what you're reading and and pray about what you're reading and and maybe make a note about what you're reading. But, But let the Bible be part of who you are. Let it be a constant part of your life. Our world is full of fantasy. Our world is is full of fiction. But let us do the hard work, the hard work of, of chasing after that which is true. And Jesus says the word of God is true. So let us dwell on that which is true. Paul says whatever is true and whatever is honorable. Think about things that are honorable, things that are, are worthy of respect, things that are dignified. I love sports, and, and almost everyone in my family, minus one person in my family, loves watching sports. But I have found over the years that, that when I'm watching sports with my kids, I've, I've had to say things like, yeah, don't, don't do that. You know? yeah, don't, don't act like that. Don't, don't do what they just did. Why? Because their conduct is it's not honorable. It's not worthy of respect. There's, there's things happening in those games. It's like, yeah, don't do that. You know, don't do that when you're by yourself. Definitely don't do that on national television. All right? and just, just watch your conduct. Watch your character. Pursue that which is honorable. Paul wrote to the Colossian church in chapter 3, verse 2, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Listen, all you had to do was, was check Facebook this morning or, or watch CNN or, or look on the internet last night. And you know that our culture is full of arrogance. Our culture is full of selfishness. Our culture is full of dishonor. We can't get away from those things. They will always be there in front of us. But we don't have to set our minds on those things. So we don't set our minds on those things. Rather, we set our minds on what is honorable. We set our minds on the heavenly truth that comes from the Word of God because Jesus said that God's Word is truth. Paul says whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right. Right. How can I think about what's right? How can I dwell on what's right when there's so much wrong in the world? How can I think about what is right when there's so much evil at my child's school? When there's so much evil at my job, when there's so much evil in our community, when there's so much evil in this country and in this world, how can I think about what is right? How can I dwell on what's right? Because I'm being barraged with what's wrong. This is what Jesus said, Matthew 5, verse 6. Blessed and happy and content 
are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Here's, here's why we have to think about what's right and we have to dwell on what's right. Because if we don't, don't miss this, if we don't think about what is right, then our hearts and our minds and our souls will just shrivel up and fall apart. So we have to think about what is right. We have to pursue those things that are righteous. And that sounds like great language. But what does it look like in real life, in the life of a real person? Johnny Erickson Tata has been a quadriplegic since she was in a diving accident in 1967. This is what she said. I don't know all the answers, and I'm not sure if I did that it would help. But I do know the one who has the answers. And knowing him makes all the difference. And then she says this. I'd rather be in this chair knowing him than on my feet without him. If I'm to be held steady in the midst of my suffering, I want to be held not by a doctrine or a cause, but by the most powerful person in the universe. That's what it means to think on what is right. See, we have to think on what is right because there is plenty in this world that is wrong. There is plenty in this world that is evil. There is plenty in this world that will drag us away and shrivel up our hearts. So we have to do the hard work of thinking on and dwelling on what is right and what is righteous. And the thing that is most righteous, those things that are most right, will come from the one who is the most powerful person in the universe. So we turn to God and we turn to his truth because he is right. Paul says, whatever's true, whatever's honorable, whatever's right, whatever is pure. I mean, generally speaking, we all want stuff that's pure, right? I mean, we want pure water, we want pure air, we want pure food, pure medicine. I mean, we, we want things that are pure. But one of the things that, that we don't hear a lot about in our culture is pure character and pure conduct. Those things don't always find their way into our culture. In fact, we kind of live in a culture where young men want to live openly immoral lives, but then they want to go marry a good, young, moral we live in a culture where, where young women want to live openly immoral lives, but, but then they want to get married in a white dress in the sanctuary. See, we live in a culture where there's a lack of purity. And it's not just the young women, is it? It's, it's the middle-aged women and the middle-aged men and, and the older men and the older women. I don't think I've ever shared this story in, in public before, but, but I know I've shared it in Bible study in private many times before. Years ago, we had an older woman in our church, and, and one of our other older women was talking to her, and, and she just said something unbelievably rude about someone in our church. And the other older woman said, hey, you know, you're, you're an old woman. You, you don't want to say things like that about people. And the lady said, you know what? She goes, I'm an old woman, and I can say whatever I want to. And my older woman friend said back to her, yep, yeah, but do you really want to? 
See, as believers, we we need to think in a way that is pure because our culture is not pure. If we're going to be lights in the darkness, we have to live and speak and act and think with light, not with darkness. Whether we're young or old or in between, we have to be people that when we sing songs about the greatness of God, we don't just sing them in the sanctuary and say, oh, I love that old hymn, but that that old hymn changes how we speak when we leave this building. Paul says we need to be thinking about that which is pure. We need to be walking away from from the old ways. This is what Paul said to the Ephesians. In reference to your former manner of life, lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in holiness of the truth. That word holy and pure, they they can kind of go together. See, we know this from looking at Facebook. We know this from looking at the news that that we live in a world where there's a lot of things that are corrupted. We live in a world where there's a lot of impurities, things that are not pure. A world full of lust, a world full of immorality. So we have to do the hard work of not dwelling on and thinking on those things. Actually, we have to do the hard work of thinking about that which is holy and pure. And God's truth, God's word is, is holy and pure. The truth of God is what we should pursue. Paul says that which is true, that which is honorable, that which is right, which is pure, and that which is lovely. It's a great word. We should dwell on things that are lovely, things that are are pleasing and attractive, things that inspire admiration. I heard a story years ago when the devastating earthquake hit Haiti back in 2010 and and a veteran news reporter was doing his report and in the live report he suddenly just broke down in tears. He he was just so overwhelmed with the, the injury and the death that was surrounding him while he was doing his report. That is a tender compassion that is a lovely picture in the middle of a tragic seen. Jesus, from the pain and the agony of the cross, said this, Father, forgive them. He was brutally tortured. He was being brutally crucified. And yet, in the middle of all of this torment, in the middle of all of this pain, in the middle of his impending death, which was just about to happen. Jesus gives the entire universe, the entire world, and your heart and my heart these lovely words of mercy. Father, forgive them. Mercy is lovely. I don't know about you, but even just the past few days, I have seen a lot of unattractive things in our culture, in our society. I've seen some things that are not pleasing, some things that are horrible. And so as believers, we, we want to do the hard work of thinking about and dwelling on that which is lovely, things that are admirable, things that are worthy of our reflection. And then Paul gives one more here. That which is true, that which is honorable, that which is right, that which is pure, whatever is lovely, and whatever is of good repute. In other words, whatever is kind, whatever is appealing, 
William Cooper has written, written the words of, of some great hymns. And on April 24th, 1800, he was very near death. His caretaker, a lady named Miss Perone, was, was offering him some kind of refreshment. And Cooper said to her, what can it signify? In other words, what he said was, why? Why should I take that? What, what good is it going to do? Have you had that moment this week? Have you had that moment this week where, where somebody was trying to help you or even you were just trying to help yourself and you are just like, what's the use? What's the point? What good can it do? It's been said those were his last words that he died the next day. All indications from his life is that Cooper was redeemed and saved, but, but in that moment of death, he was so overwhelmed with despair. He was so overwhelmed with some type of confusion that he could not put his words together to receive this good repute from Miss Perone. They may not have been in his head, and they may not have come out of his mouth, but his heart knew the right words. He had already written them down. Back in 1772, he wrote these words. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. That is a word of good repute. That is something that's kind and appealing to hear that my guilty stains can be gone. That I could lose them all because of Jesus. We live in a world where there are plenty of things that are offensive and discouraging. So we need to do the hard work of thinking about those things that are of good repute. We need to think about things that are kind and appealing. And just in case he left out of whatever, Paul finishes up with this. If there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, he's just covering all his bases. All right, if I hadn't listed it, if there's anything that's excellent, anything worthy of praise, then, then think on those things. I'm going to ask you a few questions. I want you to kind of step into these with me, and I want you to evaluate your own heart, okay? So, so here's, a, here's the first set. Things that you think, which, which things do you most likely habitually think? What do I not like about that person? What is he or she not doing that I think they should be doing? Is that normally how you think? Or do you normally think like this? What is excellent and worthy of affirming in that person? What do they do that I am thankful all right, second section, with the church. What do I not like about the church? Is that sometimes how we think, and not just this church, but any church, you know, driving down the road. What, what do I not like about that church? Or second question, what is excellent and worthy of affirming about that church? What's affirming about what they're doing for the glory of God? Or maybe let's step into it a different way. Who are you a fan of? Who do you praise? Who are your heroes? And maybe step into it a little deeper. When it comes to your kids and your grandkids, who are you pushing them toward? 
Who are you encouraging them to to be a fan of? Who are you encouraging them to praise? Who are you encouraging them to be their heroes? Are you encouraging your kids and your grandkids toward Jesus as the ultimate hero? Are you encouraging your kids and your grandkids toward people who are following Jesus, people who love Jesus, people who are devoted to Jesus? Or do you only push your kids and your grandkids toward those people that are seemingly successful? The athletes and the coaches and the politicians and the musicians and the business people or other professionals so that they might look at them and say, this is how you can get a job and make your way in the world. And there's nothing wrong with any of that. But what's first and most in your mind? Is it that your child's soul is right with God or that their degree comes from the right school? If we're really doing the hard work of thinking on these things, then there's got to be like that one thing that would really be good to think on. What would that be? What would be the most excellent thing that we could think about if we're using Paul's language? 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Okay. This is why we're Christians. Why? So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous If you're a Christian, then please understand the most excellent thought that you can ever have in the middle of a church service, in the middle of a test at school, in the middle of your workplace, in the middle of the hospital, in the middle of the ball field, the most excellent thought you can ever have would sound something like this. I once was lost, but now I'm found. I once was blind, but now I see. I no longer stand condemned in my sin. My guilty stains are gone. I have been called out of darkness, and now I'm standing in the marvelous light of God. That's the most excellent thing you can think of. It's not your degree, it's not your family, it's not your sports, it's not the prom, it's not your wedding, it's not the day your child is born. The most excellent thought that any person could ever have is I have been found by God. And if so, I'm good. I'm good. William Cooper, he he may have had a hard time pulling his words together on his deathbed. But back in 1772, he wrote some words that that had to thrill his soul when he woke up on the other side of death. And those words go like this. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave. It's a great picture. When I am dead, he writes this. Then... In a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. I'll sing thy power to save. That's excellent. That's worthy of praise. 
that our hope is in Christ. So what did Paul want them to do with all this stuff? There's a bunch of whatevers in there. What was Paul wanting them to do with all these whatevers? Well, he says it in the very last part, right? Dwell on these things. That's some Bible algebra right there, okay? This is is what Paul's saying. He goes, I want you to take these things. I want you to dwell on them. I want you to calculate them. I want you to evaluate them. I want you to reckon them. I want you to meditate on them. I I want them to be part of, of who you are. Again, that sounds like great language in the sanctuary at church on Sunday morning. What does it look like in real life? Stacy Riach is a, a mom, a wife, mother of four. She lives in Pittsburgh. And about four years ago, she had an experience that I think is kind of helpful for us as we think through what it, what it means to dwell on things. But even more so, I think this is extremely helpful when we talk about nightmares. We talk about having bad dreams and nightmares. These, these things that we've just mentioned, they're good for our nightmares. They're good for our bad dreams, whether we are having a bad dream in the middle of the day or the middle of the night. This is what Stacy said. My husband had the privilege of going to Turkey to speak at a conference for Christian workers. Although I was excited for his opportunity, I was also feeling somewhat hesitant with the terrorist activity in nearby Syria. Thanks to modern technology, we plan to FaceTime every day to keep in close touch with each other. One day during that week, our appointed time to connect went by with no contact from my husband. Maybe he's just running late, I reasoned. I looked for text messages. I checked to make sure my ringer was turned up loud enough. Maybe he's deep in conversation with someone, but as the minutes turned into hours, fear began to seize me. Unfortunately, I learned of terrorists near the Turkey border as I began watching world news reports. As fear began to consume me, every worse possible situation played out in my head. Had terrorists overcome the conference and taken captives? What would I do? My mind went through multiple scenarios, explaining to our children what had happened, looking for a job, how to support our family, and wondering whether to sell the house. By the time my husband was finally able to call, I had already decided where to move and how much to sell the house for. (laughs) And then come to find out he was just fine. Come on, show of hands. We're there, right? We've been there, right? We've been there. Listen to what she says next. When fear seizes you, all your ability to think rationally evaporates. Life becomes overwhelming and the promises of God are thrown out the window. Come on. At least one of us was there this week. I mean, I'm speaking for me. I don't know. I'm assuming there's two of us, right? At least one of us this week, we were there. Whether it was fear or worry or stress or anxiety, something caused us to think that the promises of God are not real. I love what she says though. During our moments of fear and panic, God is whispering promises to us. That's good. In our moments of fear and panic, God is whispering promises to us. What kind of promises? 
the promises we find in the Bible, the promises of the Word of God. So when Paul gives us all of these whatevers, when he tells us to think about what is excellent, he's trying to let us know, and so is Jesus from his words in John 17. They're trying to let us know that God's book is a book for you. It's for you. So dwell on it in the morning. And dwell on it when you go to work. And dwell on it when you go to school. And dwell on it in the doctor's office. And dwell on it when you go take your driving test. And, and dwell on it when you're out playing sports. And, and dwell on it when you're at the funeral. And dwell on it anywhere and everywhere that you go. And especially, my friend, dwell on it when you go to bed. Dwell on God's word right before you go to bed. Why? This is good algebra. Because God doesn't sleep. That means that he can still whisper his promises to your heart and your mind and your soul in the middle of the night. Let us dwell on that. Let us think on that. Let us do the hard work of knowing that the promises of God are real. They are real. 